Hi everyone, my name is Thiago and I'm a graduate student at Princeton University and I am your host. The Highlights is a sister podcast to Princeton Insights in collaboration with the Daily Princetonian. Insights is a newsletter written by Princeton undergrad, grad students and postdocs. We write about the most exciting and groundbreaking research being conducted here at Princeton in the form of short, fun and easy to read reviews. We cover a range of topics including psychology, neuroscience, biology, computer science and physics to name a few. Make sure to check out our website at insights.princeton.edu. Right now, I'll have the pleasure to receive my fellow graduate student Andy Jones as a co-host. Say hi Andy! Hi Thiago! It's great to be here and today we're happy to have Tomo Pereira with us. Talmo Pereira is a PhD candidate in neuroscience at Princeton University, where he uses computational methods to develop new tools for studying animal behavior. He's advised by Mala Murthy and Josh Shavitz. The work we'll talk about today is his new method called SLEEP, which allows for automatic pose estimation of multiple animals at the same time. His previous work on that was featured in many websites such as The Scientist, Nature Lab Animal, Nature Toolbox, and Quanta Magazine. Talmo was a research intern in perception at Google AI working on pose-based action recognition, an NSF graduate research fellow, and was recently a recipient of the Porter Ogden Jacobus Fellowship, which is Princeton University's top graduate honor. Congrats, Talmo, and thank you, Andy. Without further ado, here is Talmo. Thelmo, it's so nice to have you here, not only because your project is super cool, but it's also very exciting for me to bring another Brazilian to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, happy to be here. Okay, so can you describe your journey to where you are now? Yeah, happy to. So I'm Brazilian. I was born and raised in Campinas, São Paulo, and I moved to the U.S. in uh, high school after which I went to the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. And I had the opportunity to, in no small part due to a number of diversity and inclusion initiatives, to get my feet wet with academic research. And after my first couple of research experiences, I found that not only was neuroscience something that was going to be near and dear to my heart throughout my, my research career, but that using computational methods to address that presented a new, unique opportunity to uh, tackle problems that just weren't tractable before. After uh, my experience at, uh, at Caltech in the lab of David Anderson, I realized that this problem of quantifying behavior was really something that was essentially ripe for innovation. In the past, people basically started looking at animal behavior, sitting in a bush and taking down notes of what animals are doing in the wild and with your little field notebook and trying to make sense of those patterns to eventually going through the experiments in the mid 20th century to what we have now in the modern day, which is where I found myself in, which was at the cusp of the creation of the new field of computational ethology. That's what really caught my eye and what I eventually felt was going to be my research passion and ended up being the core reason why I came to Princeton. And so my goal coming into grad school was to 
by leveraging the new tools from machine learning and computer vision to uh, extract patterns and be able to quantify natural animal behavior in a way and with a resolution that just wasn't possible before. So it sounds like you had a lot of research experience even before you came to grad school, um, but I'm interested in hearing sort of what your experience as a graduate student is like. So what, what are the best and the worst parts in your perspective of being a graduate student? Uh, best and worst. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I think hands down, grad school, especially as I'm nearing my later years, really come to appreciate how the PhD is really like a, a unique time in your academic career. It's this time where you really have a lot of freedom to explore, to try things out, to, to be able to devote a large proportion of your time to really making your research a bit of an intellectual playground. And as you progress, you start working at a different level, but your your time begin, begins to become more split between the different requirements and roles that you have to fulfill as an academic. So the freedom and the time was definitely, has definitely been like some of the, the best parts of, of grad school. And I think that the other one being the access and being a part of the graduate student community. I think particularly at Princeton, it, it was essentially one of like the, the tiebreakers for me when I was choosing uh, between different grad schools. So downsides. Well, I mean, grad school is tough, right? It's, uh, I, I suppose that one of the things that really sets it apart from undergrad and one of the things that is one of the most challenging parts of grad school is this fact that there is no answer key, right? There is no back of the textbook where you can go and kind of get a sense for what your progress is. There is no syllabus, there's no curriculum. You're just gonna try things out and you're pushing at the frontier of the unknown. And by its very nature, you don't know how far you know, you're really straying from what, what the right path might be. And you don't know how close you might be to the answer. It really takes a toll. Uh, psychologically and emotionally, and definitely that's been something that I've had to to, to struggle with and deal with. You know, luckily, I've had the the good fortune of having very supportive advisors, a very supportive community, and support network outside of the lab, which has really helped to to get me through this. And I, and I felt that prison in general has done really makes a lot of effort to to ensure that we're supported as best as we can. But at the end of the day, you know, it's still still grad school. <laughs> That was such a great answer. Even I, me being a graduate student as well, I learned a lot from your answer. Now I'd like to talk more about your paper on sleep, which is your new computational tool that you develop. So you mentioned the importance of the connection between animal behavior and its underlying neuroscience and how we measure these things. Can you explain a little bit more of why studying these concepts together is important? Yeah, absolutely. To put this into context, historically, the field of studying animal behavior, and in particular natural animal behavior, which is called ethology, and the field of neuroscience were kept at a bit of a distance. It wasn't until perhaps the 70s or 80s that really these two disciplines started to become a little bit more intertwined, where ethologists began to, to seek out the, the underlying mechanisms that, that would generate that. And very naturally, uh, neuroscientists took note 
because at the end of the day, behavior is ultimately a function of neural activity. And thinking about it from an evolutionary perspective, the reason why animals evolved nervous systems to begin with, and why they evolved more and more sophisticated brains, was in order to better adapt to and react to, to their dynamic and changing environment. As brains got more developed, body morphologies became more developed. And simultaneously, nervous systems and animal bodies co-developed such that the brain was able to better control how the body moves such that it can better interact with the world and therefore increase the, fit, the fitness and the, and the likelihood that animals are able to survive and reproduce. And so in a very deep sense, behavior is essentially the goal of evolving a brain. And the ultimate purpose of the brain is to ensure that the animal is able to move around and interact with its environment, or in other words, behave in a way that ensures its success. Thinking about the brain without thinking, without taking into consideration why it came to be in the first place, it almost doesn't even make sense thinking about it retrospectively, right? But it really is something that has uh, taken the neuroscience community by storm in the, in, the, in the recent years. So breaking it down to the fundamentals, right? What is behavior? Behavior is movement of body parts. The large majority of the repertoire of behaviors that brains can elicit can be described as the dynamics of what we call pose, which is essentially the configuration of all of the actuatable body parts of an animal. So it stands to reason then that by better measuring the precise movements of all of the degrees of freedom that the brain has access to control, we're measuring quantities that are quite close to the quantities that the brain operates on. So thinking about the brain in a very simplistic sense as an input-output type machine, receiving as input sensory percepts from the environment, that is what you can see, hear, feel, smell, and producing as output how you're going to move in response to the things that you perceive. So measuring the output of the brain gives us essentially a measurement that's really only one step away from what the brain is essentially outputting. So using that perspective, in very broad terms, what is your, like your project is introducing a new sort of software or framework, and what is this software doing? Right. So the task of given an image detecting the locations of body parts uh, within that image is called pose estimation. And this problem of being able to measure the locations of body parts you know, kind of without any any constraints. It's been something that's been addressed since roughly the 1960s to 1970s is really when the first algorithms started to really emerge. And these were, were based on very like primitive types of algorithms. And prior to roughly 2014 or so, the main way that you were able to do this is through essentially what people use to do CGI in Hollywood in all the major blockbusters. So going back to like movies like The Matrix to more animated things like Avatar, for example, where essentially actors will wear a motion capture suit 
which is, you know, there's nothing really special about the suit. What it really has is a set of uh, typically reflective markers or sometimes beads that are attached to a whole bunch of different locations or anchor points, typically situated around the joints. And then you'll have a whole bunch of cameras that are, are going to be positioned around the actor such that then you make it easy to, in, in post-processing, uh, retrieve the coordinates of those markers. And so that, that was sort of like a hardware solution to, to this problem. But the issue is that while that can work fine if you have an actor that's you know, willing to wear a motion capture suit, that doesn't really translate so well to the domain of, of neuroscience research because we can't very well ask our uh, our mice or certainly not our flies to wear motion capture suits. And adding equivalents of markers to them perturbs their natural behavior and introduces all sorts of bias, not to mention it being incredibly uh, laborious to, to add these sorts of markers to, to animals. And it's, it ends up being not as uh, reliable or reproducible. Enter deep learning. So the deep learning revolution starting around 2012 or so eventually led to the rise of the revolution in human pose estimation uh, around 2014 and 2015 uh, when the, the big landmark papers came out showing massive improvements in performance in being able to retrieve the locations of those body parts without having to require that humans wear a motion capture suit or any sort of markers whatsoever. And so... And you, by leveraging huge data sets and fancy deep neural networks and tons of GPUs and a lot, a lot, a lot of crowdsourced labeling, they were able to, to have systems that could do the equivalent of these motion capture suits, but just in completely natural images. So this was around the time when I was starting grad school and we thought, well, why can't we do this for animals? And so that takes us to our, our original animal pose estimation paper, LEAP and now its successor for post-tracking multiple animals, sleep. So briefly, the, the main innovations that, that were required were to adapt this to the domain of animals, where first we have to deal with the problem that we don't have massive amounts of data that are pre-labeled, and because every animal has a different morphology, it's not very straightforward to just create a single data set that's going to work for everyone. Everyone's data looks a little bit different in different labs with different experimental setups, and so ultimately, taking this tack of like having just one huge uh, neural network that's going to work, you know, for everyone, it's just not going to work. It, it, we're, we're not quite there yet as a, as a field. And so we have to adapt to this challenge of having few labeled examples. And so and we partly leverage the fact that you can train a, a neural network that specializes on a very specific kind of video. Let's say you just have mice that are sitting in their cage and you have a camera that's in a fixed location, turns out, you know, networks actually do quite well, even with labels on the order of you know, a few dozen to a few hundred, and they're able to specialize on that kind of data. They don't generalize, but also as a neuroscience researcher or anybody you know, studying animal behavior, you're going to be collecting data in the lab or in somewhat controlled conditions, not attempting to do this off of, you know, YouTube videos in, in such a way that you need it to, to be able to generalize to everyone's iPhone videos. So we, le we leverage that, we adapt the neural network architectures, and we employ a couple other fancy optimization techniques to ensure that you can begin to train these neural networks using basically the equivalent of 
less than an hour worth of human labeling time when you're just starting completely from scratch. And so that worked quite well, uh, especially, you know, for our first paper, a leap, and we designed that to track individual animals. Moving forward to sleep, we want to generalize this, the problem of, of tracking multiple animals. And that introduced a whole set of new issues. You have to deal with essentially three core problems. One is the problem of localization. That is, how can you, given an image, detect the locations of body parts, given that there might be more than one copy of each body part when you have multiple animals? And then we essentially use the same techniques that we did before uh, of using neural networks that estimate the probability of each body part being located at each part of the image. Great. But then we have to deal with the problem of, okay, we found all the body parts, but how do we know which ones go with which? I give you four uh, sets of legs and four sets of arms and, you know, two sets of heads. Tell me which ones belong to the same animal. That problem is what we term uh, the part association problem or the part grouping problem. And to solve that, essentially, we adopted two approaches that take different, uh, they use different techniques to model the relationship between body parts and essentially learn to represent the geometry of the, of the animal's anatomy in such a way that we can connect the detected body parts with each other. And the third problem is we call the temporal association problem, which is given the detected and grouped body parts within one image, tell me now which uh, of these grouped poses are poses of the same animal across two different images that are captured at two different points in time. This is required in order to be able to track the position of individual body parts of the same animal over uh, over video frames. So localization, grouping, and tracking. And to address all of those, we built this software package from the ground up called Sleep to specifically, you know, deal with this problem of tracking pose in multiple animals. Thus far, virtually all of the approaches to these individual sub-problems really only do them separately or, or treat them as completely distinct problems. And what we've done is we've unified them under a single, not only methodological framework, but also a cohesive software framework that can uh, take advantage of being aware of all these problems simultaneously so that one can inform the other. There's a very large number of innovations that went under the hood for sleep and uh, we're getting ready to release a new major version that's going to have all sorts of new goodies. In particular, we're targeting applications to create the opportunity for researchers to do all sorts of new types of experiments, such as tracking the body parts of any number of animals in real time. And if we can track pose in real time, we can therefore recognize behaviors in real time. There's a whole laundry list of new innovations that we're baking into sleep, and lots of it is made possible through the work of dedicated research software engineers, as well as many collaborators who have been working with us to test this software while it's been in beta. Very cool. Yeah. 
It sounds like along with the collaborate line of collaboration, there are a lot of different applications where this tool could be useful for answering certain questions. So I'm curious, what do you think the impacts of this technology uh, will be in the future? Uh, are there new scientific questions that can be addressed now that sort of this annotation process is much easier? And I guess specific question is, are there any sort of interesting or bizarre applications that uh, you've seen so far for your tool that uh, certain questions that are being asked that you didn't expect? There's always uh, there's always <laughs> new and creative uh, applications that people find. Well, we, we don't exactly, we don't require people to like register with us or anything like that when they use sleep. So I end up, you know, since it's public now, I end up only hearing about the more, I think, <laughs> Uh, creative approaches when, you know, people kind of reach out to us with questions, but that still does happen in a pretty regular clip. Uh, maybe one of the more interesting recent contacts I've had with uh, a sleep a sleep user um, has been where they've used sleep to track uh, plants. So, you know, <laughs> as is evident from the name and really from pretty much everything I've said so far, right? Like we've really designed this to, for animals, uh, even more specifically, like, you know, non-human animals. But if you, if you, if you kind of think about it, right? Like pretty much all life forms need to, need to move in order to, to survive. And that includes organisms from other kingdoms, right? Such as plants. And so what they had were these essentially time-lapse videos of, of plants in their different conditions. And what they wanted to do was to be able to track the different features of like their uh, leaves and stems and shoots and pistils and, and whatnot over, over time. And in a view where they had a whole bunch of different uh, individual plants. And yeah, I mean, it obviously works just as as well as it does as it is for animals, but it was really yeah unexpected to to see that see that happening. Um, so that was just a kind of a fun one, but some of the more I think interesting applications that are going to lead to I think some really cool science uh, that really wasn't possible before, I think are really uh, coming from the experiments that rely on uh, long-term behavioral monitoring, right? And so whereas a behavioral neuroscience, you know, before essentially 2014 was really dominated by short, very structured behavioral assays, things like mice being put in a box and being taught to press levers and the sessions, you know, lasting like order of minutes to now us moving back towards more natural behavior, where now we try to record uh, tens of minutes to hours. What we're missing now is doing this for the entire lifetime of an animal, doing this for the on the order of time scale of days or weeks, to, to the point where we can now begin to address like questions of not only you know how does the brain you know produce behavior at a specific snapshot of time, but how does it do that. Uh, throughout development and how does the development of the brain uh, interact with the the evolution of behavioral patterns and so we're working with uh, several people who have you know these sorts of applications in, in several different kinds of species and we're very excited that you know we've been uh, we're able to get some very promising results in ensuring that post tracking can be reliable and and uh 
produce usable experimental data on this time scale of days to days to weeks. It's really going to open up, we think, like a whole new frontier of the types of experiments that you can do with this kind of technology. Awesome. Yeah, that was about it. Uh, thanks for your super thorough answers. I'm very excited to read your next papers about the new features that are going to add to sleep, including these pieces about behavior, since that's actually my area as well. So I'm biased. But hopefully our listeners will also be excited and look forward to that as well. Cool. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks, Tomo. This was great. This episode of The Highlights was written by Thiago Tafarella and Andy Jones. It was produced by Isabel Rodriguez under the 145th Managing Board of the Daily Princetonian. For more podcasts and other digital media from The Prince, visit www.dailyprincetonian.com. Many thanks to Talmo Pereira for speaking with us. To read more about Talmo's work, check out the Princeton Insights article covering his research, which can be found in the description of this episode. Thank you for listening, and until next time!